Hey, this is Tiffany Aurora. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. So I'm so excited to get to introduce you to today's guest. Tony Perilla is joining me today. He is a science fiction and fantasy writer and a serial web novelist. He publishes under the pen name A.M. Perilla and has several books that are available now. His books include Inheritors of Eschaton, Grand Design, and his current web novel, Peculiar Soul. News for this week, his novel Grand Design is being released as an audiobook, which is super exciting. So you can use the link that is in the show notes if you would like to order a copy of the audiobook. And you can also refer to the other links in the show notes to view all of Tony's work. So Tony, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. I want to start by going back in time just a little bit. I'm wondering if you could take me back to that moment when you first decided that you wanted to write novels, when you knew that this is what you wanted to do, when you knew you wanted to write novels and web novels specifically, because I'm curious about that. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened that made you decide this wasn't just a hobby for you anymore? This was something that was serious, um, and you had decided, like, this is the moment. I'm going to put in the work that's necessary to make this happen. What was that moment for you? Well, it was sort of a weird transition, um, honestly, because for, for a long time, I was a habitual reader, still am, of the writing subreddit uh, HFY for Humanity Fuck Yeah. Um, <laughs> and if if you're unfamiliar with it, it is a group that spawned off of some dark corner of the internet after the release of Avatar, the James Cameron movie, um, where people were sick narratively of the trope that aliens were inherently more advanced than people. Like mm. puny humans may as well be, you know, mouth breathing savages for the rest of the galaxy. The founding premise, basically, for the the little subgenre, is what if we're actually kind of cool? Like, what if we get out there and we meet other species, and it turns out that we are somewhat exceptional in terms of the galactic community? And so, I. I enjoyed reading the various stories on there. I mean, like any writing subreddit, there's a, a wide gamut of content, but there's a lot in there that they're very good and they're they're thought provoking. And I was in the habit of publishing a few pieces, little short stories, like a thousand to several thousand words on there. Oh, probably about once every couple of months, you know, just as an idea occurred to me. And my first novel was actually just one of those. And somebody said, you should write more of that. And I did. And I didn't stop for 191,000 words. I'm always impressed by the length of the work that you produce, like the frequency of it, as well as its length. Because so tell our listeners, your, your current novel, Peculiar Soul, what's your word count right now? Uh, let's see. Today's chapter puts me at 425,000 words on the public edition of it with probably another 15,000 um, for my patrons. So longer, 
Yeah, yeah. So to put that in a little bit of context, because so as writers, we often will talk about the length of our stories and word counts. And um, so for, for any non or non writers in the audience, as a comparison, um, the Order of the Phoenix from the Harry Potter series, which was the longest book in that series, that was 257,000 words. It, it's not very long for a web novel, uh, which I find yeah. really funny. There's a, a distinction between uh, traditionally published novels and web novels and that web novels do tend to ramble on both because uh, we don't have the luxury of going back and doing condensing edits and also because it's financially advantageous for everybody to keep rambling on for as long as we can. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because some of our listeners might not be familiar with web novels. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that medium specifically? I mean, you shared a little bit in terms of the history, but what is it that has kept you publishing in the serial web novel format versus transitioning to say a traditional novel well i think that it's just a lot easier for my particular writing style because having a web novel instead of asking me to write an entire book all at once i am writing in small manageable chunks once per week and i typically publish between four and five thousand words per week and i find it a lot easier to stay motivated and focused on creating those small chunks of content versus trying to create and shape this gigantic behemoth of a book. Uh, I mean, it probably wouldn't be that long if I wrote the entire thing at once, but still, I mean, it would be 100,000 words plus, right? So it's easier for me to address it in discrete chunks like that. And then from a creative standpoint, I also find it extremely helpful to be able to see the reactions of readers every week to gauge which points in the book are coming across well, which things they're getting confused about, and so on and so forth. Because you're always presenting a framework for the user to sort of build their own story around when they read it, because they're supplying a lot of the context and external knowledge that you don't reference. Like if I say he's driving a car, I'm not defining what a car is or what colors they typically are or how fast they go or the idea of roads and gasoline. Like that's all coming externally. If I say something in a story and I have inadvertently missed that half the population has little to no experience with this or has a very different experience than my own, then that's a good way to find out before I've gone through the effort of actually publishing the book. And then everybody's like, well, wait, I don't understand this plot point. I'm curious, do you have any suggestions or would you share any advice for writers who are working on stories in other formats, not necessarily web novel formats, and they may or may not be publishing their, their work right away, um, but advice that you would give to other writers for getting feedback as they're actually developing their story? Well, that's, it's difficult because you have to find somebody who's, uh, who likes you enough to be willing <laughs> to read an unfinished work of yours, but at right? the same time is also willing to tell you if you've done something horrible. And then also because of that experiential uh, difference thing, it can be difficult to find somebody who is far enough away from you in a in sort of a, a life experience sense to give you an adequate read on what this might look like to somebody who isn't in your immediate group. So yeah. I, I that's none of that's advice. I was just giving you challenges, really. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> if, if I had to go for advice, it's find somebody who is interested in 
reading something different from what they're normally accustomed to reading. I won't pretend that's not challenging. I think finding good beta readers is one of the hardest things that authors have to contend with. Yeah. I, I think that certain people have different approaches to the beta reader strategy than others. I know there's some authors in the web novel community that swear by having a small dedicated group that's basically just advanced, advanced readers that some of them use their higher uh, patron tiers actually as a group of beta readers, which is good if your patrons are up for that. So it's sort of an mm -hmm. audience determined thing. Um, I am curious about this in terms of feedback. So I, I've published my first novel. My first novel came out in 2019. I've got a second one that's coming out later this year. And I know that um, my way of being able to assess feedback, both in terms of being able to hear feedback um, and also sort of work through it and decide which comments really are important for me and for this particular work and which ones I'm going to kind of let go. I know that my approach to that has changed quite a bit over the last few years. And I think part of that for me has come as just I've gained experience as a writer and I've become more comfortable, you know, with my own voice. Um, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how your your response to feedback and your ability to sort of sift through feedback and determine what is applicable for you or what you want to actually use, like how that has changed for you over the course of the years, because you've been doing this for a really long time. And like you mentioned, you get feedback on a weekly basis from your readers, which is kind of a cool thing. So could you just talk a little bit about how that has changed for you? Well, sure. I mean, at first I was I paid a lot of attention to every scrap of feedback I got because when I was first publishing, I had you know, a handful of people who were reading the story. I think by the time I finished writing Grand Design, I had somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 followers, which, I mean, that's not nothing, but in terms of you know actual numbers of people reading the story, uh, it, it's not particularly significant. That said, uh, I, I was much more inclined to pay attention to the feedback, and it took me a long time to learn that not everybody is there to read the story you wrote. Some people mm. are looking for a story, and they happen to find yours, and then they'll get irritated when it isn't the story they wanted it to be. It's important to differentiate the comments from the people that are legitimately having an issue reading the story you wrote, and the others that are having an issue finding the story they want to read. Because the latter is not somebody that is ever going to be happy reading your story. Uh, and you can safely disregard what they have to say, like nicely, but at the end of the day, they're not your audience. The former folks are the ones you got to listen to, and they're the ones that help you, like I said before, to craft a version of your story that provides context that makes it more universally interpretable so that anybody can pick it up regardless of their prior experience and read the story you wanted to tell them rather than some weird version of it that they're filling in from context that you didn't intend. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's hard, though, I think sometimes to be able to discern who your audience is and is it. I mean, sometimes there's a clear differentiation, but it can be really hard. Well, I mean, it's not a it's not a binary thing, right? It's not like somebody is or is not in in the story group. Like I've definitely had points where certain readers have fallen off the wagon. Like they get in 
early on in the story and they're all down for whatever I got going on in the first arc. And then I get to the second arc and I do something with the plot and I'm like, Ooh, no, I don't like that. And then they're out. And <laughs> I, I think that there are advantages and disadvantages to challenging readers like that, because every time you make a choice that requires the reader to decide if this is or is not a story they want to keep reading, some of them are going to say no. But if you never challenge the reader at all, you are going to write a very boring story. So you have to sort of walk that line. So that makes me curious. How often do you purposefully challenge your readers? Oh, well, I don't know that I ever set out to challenge the readers as its own goal. But there are definitely uh, points in the story where I think to myself, oh, yeah, that's not going to be popular. There was... In particular, there was an early arc in Peculiar Soul that I knew was going to be problematic for a lot of readers because it deals with uh, themes of loss of agency. And there is a certain a certain group, especially common to web novel readers, that enjoys reading stories where they identify with the protagonist. And it's not a bad thing, inherently, but... For the people that identify with the protagonist, if you then make the protagonist endure something or do something that they disagree with, it can have an unpleasant effect on their immersion. And a lot of them will react, in the online space anyway, they'll react quite vocally and negatively. So it's sort of infamous in the web novel community that you don't do certain things that will challenge these readers Otherwise, you will you will break their immersion and you will provoke a reaction commensurate to how much they're invested in the character. My takeaway from that is that it's better to do it early because uh, having done it once, you can safely, you know, shuffle them out of the story and do whatever you like. You're sort of curating your audience a little bit that way. No, I, I think that's actually a really a good way to think about it, because the longer you let somebody have the wrong impression of what sort of story they're reading the more annoyed with you they're going to be when they realize what sort of story they're reading. Like, it's tempting. I think a lot of authors try to sneak their stories in as though, uh, you know, having read the first half of the story, the reader is going to be committed enough to just soldier on through. And that may work in a couple of cases, but by and large, it just makes people angry because they feel uh, deceived that, the story was given to them one way and then suddenly twists in the middle. There's a temptation to sort of soften the story for early audiences and then introduce the, the twists and turns a little bit later. I think that it's better to be honest and upfront. And if, if you're going to make this a hard story to read, make it hard to read all the way through. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the whole, what's the promise that you're making to your audience? And are you right. following through on your promise? Okay, so you you publish a new chapter every week and you do so consistently, which is something um, that I've definitely really admired about your practice. And I'm, I'm curious, um, what are some of just the practices or the habits that you have in place that help you maintain that level of productivity? Because um, that's hard. I mean, <laughs> a lot of writers struggle to, you know, some weeks struggle to write a sentence. Sometimes they might go weeks or months without doing that. So I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what sort of, yeah, what sort of habits you have put into place to help you do that on a consistent basis? Well, I, um, I, I think the most important thing that I do is to kind of chart out where I should be at any given point in the week in terms of uh, total word count. I try to 
sort of just keep a keep track of where I'm at and how much I, I know that I can output per day and taking into account the possibility of having an off day where I just don't feel like it. I, I try to just plan out time in advance to write so that I can so I can run into problems with the chapter with enough time to address them, I think is the best way to put it. Like with this week, I I actually finished up rather late because I I had a very good early couple of writing sessions. And then I kind of stalled on a scene where I knew what was going to go into the scene. I think I was a little bit overconfident and I was like, oh yeah, I can dash that out. And then I found other things to do with my time and eventually had to just allocate an afternoon, sit down and bang out the rest of the chapter. But I had it in my head the entire time that this is how much I need to write. This is about how long it's going to take me. It's probably not very helpful advice because the only way to get that idea in your head of how much time and effort a particular writing session equates to is to just do it a lot. But, but that in and of itself is good advice right there, right? So you ha you have to be able to sit down and, and just do it over and over and over again until you kind of establish what those norms are for yourself. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be like, occasionally there are bad days where you just don't get a lot of writing done, but you don't always have to write in order to make it a productive session. Like, I know for certain chapters, I struggle with writing because I don't have a clearly articulated idea of what's about to happen in the chapter. Like, I know the general plot points that need to hit, but I don't have a clear path sketched out between where the story is currently and what I need to write about next. And so sometimes the, the chapter session is just writing out a general framework for the chapter's progression so that I can sketch out where it needs to go and anticipate any problems or any necessary scenes that are going to come up. Sometimes it's research, reading back through my own material to familiarize myself with like the, the dialogue pattern of characters that haven't come up in a while uh, to make sure it's consistent or go back through my notes to figure out if there are any themes that are relevant to the current scene that I need to be putting in, uh, that sort of thing. So like there, there's a lot of stuff you can do that contributes to being able to write the chapter better when you actually sit down to write it, sort of sharpening the saw type work. But at a certain point, you do actually need to sit down and write. That's no, that's fantastic. I'm I'm a firm believer in the value of putting in the reps and showing in showing up every single day to actually do the work. But it's a really good point that if if the words aren't there, because there I think there are certain times where we as writers we sit down to write, and sometimes we can sort of force our way through and get something on paper. And there are times though when we're writing and we just look down at what we're writing and we think this is. This is no good. And it's nice to sort of give yourself that freedom to redirect your attention and say, okay, there are other things that I can do that absolutely will sharpen the saw, as you said, um, but that will sort of help me write much better when I can put my focus in that space. Um, so kind of along those lines, what, where do you go for, where do you go for, I'm going to call it creative energy. That may not be the best phrase, but where do you go to when you are feeling that way, when you're not feeling sort of the spark or the muse or it's just the, the words aren't flowing? Um, how do you sort of refuel your that well of creativity? Uh, I typically just take a walk, which, I mean, again, mileage may vary on that one. But uh, for me, I like having a relatively distraction-free environment where my mind is sort of minimally engaged in the exercise of not running into things or not getting hit by cars, but uh, still 
free enough to brainstorm about plot points. If I'm having trouble focusing on the story, I typically will kind of rubber duck it to myself to sort of describe what needs to happen in the chapter or the the events that are leading up to the scene that I'm having trouble on and try to build the logical progression forward from those those originating events and the base premises that uh, that govern the scene. Okay, so here's a question for you. Um, could you talk about one of your favorite characters of all time from any novel that you've ever read um, and just maybe break it down a little bit, discuss what it is about that character that makes it one of your favorites? Oh, well, that's a... That's a broad question. Um, I know I'm really putting you on the spot. Or you, you could also, if, if you would prefer, talk about one of your favorite characters from the book that you're writing right now and why that one is your favorite. Well, no, I have I have a good one from another author. Uh, and okay. it's one that may be familiar to people who, uh, who read fantasy. It's the character of Wit or Hoyd from uh, Brandon Sanderson's books all of them it's a character that is sort of like his i don't know how to phrase it like it's a character that he puts in as an easter egg in a lot of different settings who is common to every story that he writes despite them all being in in different settings from each other and he sort of functions as the the jester character or the fool the uh sort of like the coyote trickster mythos inserting himself into places where he's not supposed to be and involving himself on the sidelines of important events. And I like the character for a couple of reasons. First off, because I think it's a neat idea to have a character who transcends the boundaries of a particular book's plot and involves himself in little things here and there, not in a way that is essential for the reader to grasp in order to pick up on the broader plot, but in a way that's sort of like a reward for the people who are paying attention, that you know this character is doing something with a little bit of extra significance because you recognize who he is. And then also, in the scenes where he does get a little bit of a chance to, to develop his own dialogue and participate a little more, he comes across as a very acerbic, uh, funny character with a penchant for deflating inflated egos and just just well-written dialogue. So there are a lot of things I admire about that character, both as just from how he's written and the structural implementation of the character into all of the books that he appears in. So if if someone was writing a character and they were struggling, they were struggling to get, like really, really breathe life into this character. Like, let's say it's, it's very integral to the plot. Um, they know this is a character that they want to keep, but they feel like the character is falling a little bit flat. Do you have any suggestions for ways that they could approach that character or ways that they could um, just approach their writing to help bring that character to life a little bit more? Hmm. I think that's a tough one because that's a, uh, I think the process of developing characters is one of the more personal things in writing. So my strategy may not work for everybody, but I tend to find that the best way that characters develop for me is through engaging them in dialogue, and in particular, engaging them in adversarial dialogue. Because, oh, that's interesting. Well, because there, there's a lot of different sorts of dialogue, right? You can have dialogue where you're, it's functional dialogue, where you're like coordinating, we need to go this way, you know, 
the trail is five miles up, you know, like that sort of thing. That's not very exciting dialogue. That's the same for everybody. Not because, at all. Not I mean, all. The, the function of the dialogue is the same, right? You're conveying information, the information's being picked up. But in other sorts of dialogue, it is standing in for a confrontation or the dialogue itself is the confrontation. And I, th I think that it shows a lot about the character. Like, are they going to take this conflict that they have and escalate it beyond a conversation? Like, do they just punch the guy in the face after a certain point? Do they, are they rude? Are they polite? Are they aggressive or do they sort of put on a nice face? There's a lot of things that come out in a character's dialogue when they have a real actionable consequence for the things that they say. So if the other character wants to get them to admit something or disclose something or to agree with them about a particular issue, then suddenly there's a stake to the dialogue and you get to see who that character is as they maneuver and try to advance their own interest uh, instead of whatever that other party is working on. And so I think that for me is one of the better ways to develop characters. I often don't have a good sense of how a character talks before the first time they have a, an interesting lengthy dialogue scene. I love that. I think that's a great piece of advice. Just taking every character through some sort of adversarial dialogue, like you mentioned, even if it doesn't get published in the book, could be really helpful to a writer to make sure that they, they understand that character's voice and tone, kind of like what you were just saying. Yeah, I, mean, I think that uh, writing is the best practice for writing. And so if you're struggling to yep, write a scene, yep, absolutely, you, you know can it. write a scene that you don't intend to publish. Yep. I know that yeah. I, I struggle with that. Like, I don't like writing things that I know I'm not going to publish because to me, it feels, it, it feels fake. It's like I'm writing fan fiction of my own book. It's, it's weird, but <laughs> I can see at least how that could be helpful. If you really have something you need to workshop out. I think it's probably more productive to just write the scene that you intend to use and see if it comes out well the first time, because if it does, yay, congratulations, you don't have to write it anymore. But yeah, I mean, if, if there's something you need to explore, you can be freer to do that outside of the constraints of whatever scene you need to write in the book at that moment. So I think I think my process is a little bit different than yours because I do a lot of that. I do a lot of writing scenes that I know I will never use, but very much I, I use them to explore the characters a little bit themselves, but I also will use that writing to explore the world that I'm building because I'm also a sci-fi fantasy writer. Um, and I'll just use it to sometimes to play with some different plot developments and sort of see what feels more natural for those individual characters. Yeah, I think that um, it's it like I said, it's a very personal thing to figure out how you how you spool out the characters' personalities into writing. But it's it's definitely helpful to even if you're pulling ahead. Like I do break from my typically fairly chronological writing process. And I write important dialogue from characters because sometimes I just think of a good line for a pivotal scene. I know that's coming up and I don't want to lose it. So I will occasionally write ahead individual paragraphs or monologues of speech that I know are going to come in handy later. And I feel like since you don't learn a lot about characters until they get to those pivotal moments, writing ahead to the scene where you learn about that character's personality in truth can help you make the introduction of the character a little bit more consistent. You do have some great one-liners, by the way. 
I always, uh, that's one of the well, things that you. I always look forward to in reading your work. Yeah, some very punchy lines that your characters have, mic drop moments. They're really good. Well, I think that it's important to have the characters show off a little bit, even if it's not necessarily the most realistic form of dialogue, because in a real life scenario, most people top out at the, like you know, your face. Yeah. That's, that's where they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think char characters in every medium should be wittier than is realistic. Yes, absolutely. And you, you have the time and space to craft that, right? It doesn't have to be on yeah. the spot. So for sure, take advantage of that. Yeah. Pivoting just a little bit away from uh, characters and, and storylines and plot development and whatnot. What, what would you say is your biggest struggle as a writer? Hmm. Well, I think it is, it's probably just the, uh, the, the act of actually sitting down to write the stupid thing. It's like, I don't know, I talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, I have my process for making sure that I'm at where I need to be in a given point in the week, but really like, I don't view the amount that I write as particularly crazy, like in terms of volume, I know writers in the web novel community that output uh, three or four times as much as I do. And they're a little crazy, but it generally tends to be good product and everybody's got their own system for dealing with it. I, I think that it can be very taxing to force yourself to put down stuff onto a page for long periods of time within a day. So like longer than a couple hours. And then also for multiple consecutive days, because I feel like everybody's got their own store of creative juices that needs a little bit of time to replenish. If you don't spend your time doing non-writing related tasks, it's a lot easier for your mind to get stuck in a rut and not come up with anything good. What do you think about the advice um, of always, well, so there's, there's two versions of this. One is stop the work before the well runs dry. The other is, uh, I forget who said it now off the top of my head, but you know, always, always stop when you know what the next thing is going to be, right? Like don't, don't write uh, until you're, you're out of ideas. I think, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I don't think I put that into practice in quite the same way. My, version of that advice is I never stop on a scene break. So I always, and I, t I prefer to stop a couple of paragraphs into a scene. If I, if, but if I need to stop before the end of a scene, I'll leave myself space to write the ending. And then later on I can pick it up and write the ending. And then that usually gives me enough momentum to launch into the next scene with some, you know, some punch. I think giving yourself a little bit of a toehold into the next scene is good, though, because it lets you sort of mull over what direction you want to take it in the intervening time, note down any ideas about like where you want to go in the scene or things that you should put in. Sometimes I've been wandering around in the intervening time between writing sessions and I'll realize, oh, crap, you know, I have this character that I need to uh, reintroduce because I, I promised I would, you know, that's. Like, I totally forgot about this character. I haven't addressed her in 60 chapters. So I, I think it's valuable. I think it's good to give yourself a mental alignment to the next thing that you're going to write and to de-abstract it a little bit by writing a couple of paragraphs so that you're not just going in cold. I think it's a common thread of just giving yourself whatever cognitive fodder you need to work just because... Everybody is going to have a different thing that works best for them, but it's good to give yourself whatever that is. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, taking time to figure out what that is and giving yourself giving yourself permission. I think sometimes I think sometimes as writers and I mean, I would 
include entrepreneurs in this as well, artists of all kinds. I think sometimes we we need to give ourselves very explicit permission to do what is necessary for us to continue to create because it is it's tough. And sometimes the things that we need to keep us fueled are seem a little strange to other people. I don't know how often you've encountered this, but um, I think that explicit permission is is really important. It's really key. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I keep making references to writing being a very personal process, and I think it is, but not in the sense that it's personal, like something that is private, which is the sense we use that word in a lot. It's obviously not private because you're writing about it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's personal yeah. in that it is variable per person. It is highly dependent on you as the author because writing is, is the process of, like I mentioned before that you're providing a framework for other people to build their story on. And you're just, you're doing the same thing when you're writing. You are taking an abstract story in your head and condensing it into that framework. In a sense, if we're looking at it in that perspective, you have to tell yourself the story first in order to get it onto the page. And that's hard because if it's abstract, you've never had to solidify certain aspects of it. Like, how do they get from point A to point B? You know, how do you talk about this when their culture has no concept of like seasons or, you know, various other things we take for granted as a premise in our, our normal world? Like, there are things that just don't come up until you go through the exercise of telling the story, which is why it's good that you can do it in private without anybody listening. Seth Godin has this book that's called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and it's always your turn. And it's a book for creatives of all types. And it's, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. But there is a line in there where he says that the book that will most change your life is the one you write. And I know I found that to be true not specifically because the book itself changed my life in terms of being any sort of huge financial success not because of the content itself but because of the actual the actual process of writing an entire book and all of the work that goes into that and i think on some level you know i mean as authors and as writers there's a certain level of our just our personal outlook on life and ourselves as humans that weaves itself into our work doesn't mean it's autobiographical by any means but there is there's something very personal in our work and i think that's true across the board i think that's a big part of what draws us to this outlet um so i'm just curious that phrase the book that will most change your life is the one you write i'm just curious what you think of that and if you feel like there's any truth to that for you i mean i think it can be true it depends on what you're writing right uh uh, I know I know people that are writing uh, purely because they view it as something that is like it is a financial thing for them, and they yeah. make good content. A lot of them, but I don't I don't believe that there is a lot of personal investment in what they're writing beyond the the necessary bits. So I think that if you're writing a story that you want to tell, then yes the the exercise of telling that story is going to be meaningful to you because you don't want to tell a story enough to go through the exercise of writing it unless there is something important about it to you. I mean, writing is not something you can just sort of swing into and out of lackadaisically. Like it, it is a time investment uh, and it is annoying at times. <laughs> it is. And yet it's so worth it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think it's everybody gets something from it that is appropriate to their goals when writing. Like, if you want to write a story that talks about a personal trauma that you had, then I, I feel like you're going to get something different out of that writing experience than somebody who wants to write a story because they think the world is neat and they want to tell a story in it. There, there's a range. Um, and I feel like that comment about writing showing who the author is is also kind of telling because I think that's definitely true. Like you can you can derive a lot about an author's base premises from reading their writing, which goes back to that thing I said about like having a vastly different lived experience than somebody else. Like you can tell if you're reading a book, the, the author just has certain things in their life that they do or don't consider that never really occurred to you or that occur to you quite a lot and ne obviously never occurred to them. And I think that's where a lot of readers experience a misalignment with the author is that there's, there's a moment where it becomes clear that the author is telling a story to a group of people and they're not in it. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're making a, an assumption in the story that it's clear that they intend for the reader to read something a certain way. And for that particular reader, it's not only not the way that they read it, but they object to that reading. They think it's, it's weird or, or potentially offensive that somebody would read it that way. So I think that that comes up a lot in the um, I think you you browse the like men writing women subreddit. Yeah. And, and you, you see the sort of experientially deficient depictions of the opposite gender. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing where it becomes obvious that like it's a man writing a book for a man. And who knows, maybe they've deluded themselves into thinking that, you know, they are actually writing it for everybody. But that just means that their definition of everybody is not as inclusive as it should be when it kind of goes back to really knowing your audience and who you're writing the story for and making that clear up front how um tony how clearly do you define for yourself who your target audience is is a very business way to say it but who your kind of um ideal reader is like i have a very specific avatar in my head when i when I write like this is, I mean, very specific down, down to the clothes that they're wearing and the age that they are, because that's just easiest for me. That helps me really sort of fine tune the kind of the voice that I want to use as well as the way that I want to present the story. But I'm just curious, how, how do you define your kind of ideal reader? I was actually just talking about this with another author um, because I think there's two different ways to go about it. I think the way that you're doing it is one. Uh, and I think the way that I'm doing it is another. Uh, you are writing a story for a reader. And I think that is probably a more viable way to go about actually finding somebody to read it. <laughs> I think the other way to do it is to write the story as you would prefer the story be and then hope there's a reader out there for it. Which... Would you define yourself as the reader, though, in that, in that particular context? I mean, yes, if you're so yes and no, like you're always writing it with the knowledge that somebody else is going to read it. And so I suppose you are inevitably modeling some aspect of the reader when you're writing it. But I don't I, I don't think that I try to consider them too much in actually constructing the story. It's more just that I feel like the story exists and it there's a certain way that it's going to be told and there's probably readers out there for it but I don't really know that I, I envision them in my head as part of the writing process. It's more just that I figure they'll, they'll find their way there if they're meant to, and uh, if not, oh well.
So last question. Let's say that one of our listeners has been contemplating writing, I'm going to say either a book or a web novel, a traditional novel um, or, or a web novel. And they keep going back and forth. They're trying to decide if they want to commit to it or not. What would you tell them? I mean, they should just try it. The worst thing that happens is you get, you know, 10,000 words into it and give up. That's not particularly damaging as far as consequences go. Uh, and if you find out you like it, then good for you. You've written a book. I think a lot of people, they worry about like, oh, you know, I, I'm not going to write a good book. I, I don't think that that's much of a barrier either. I think everybody, it, unless you have been doing writing another exercise beforehand, your first book isn't going to be a good book, right? Or at least it's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. You're going to have deficiencies. So if you're waiting for your first book to be a good book, then you're never going to write anything. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I have to tell you this real quick. I said that was going to be the last question, but I was <laughs> uh, actually talking about this with a, a friend of mine recently who's a screenwriter. And so I'm working on my second novel. He's working on what I think is his third screenplay right now. And we were jokingly referring to the whole process of like, writing your first book or your first screenplay as sort of like the equivalent of a first love, you know, mm -hmm. like in the moment, it's so innocent and so naive and you just love, like everything is new. And, you know, you have like these, these grand dreams of what's going to happen. And then, um, which all of which is beautiful, of course, in and of its own way. And then, you know, you publish it or the movie gets made and, and then you move on to the next one and you look back and you think, wow, I missed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then, and then by the, and then the second, the second go around, you you realize how much you didn't know, and it's it's actually sometimes really hard, and sometimes you don't end up really starting to get your bearings until the third go round. And I don't know that the numbers themselves, you know, like the third project, the third book, the third screenplay matters, but just sort of that concept of um, of acknowledging that you. Our first go around usually for most of us is not going to be good. I'm sure there are exceptions, but, um, but it's okay. And to give yourself that freedom of, Hey, like go all in, write the best thing that you can write and publish it. And you know what? It's okay. If it's not that good. Yeah. I mean, I went into pretty much every one of my novels with the intent of learning something from the act of writing it. Like my first one, grand design, I wrote specifically because I had the idea for my second book in mind, inheritors of eschaton. And I looked at it and I realized it was big and it probably shouldn't be my first long form creative writing project. So when I wrote that, I told you I wrote that short story first, I had already been noodling around with the idea of writing like a, a longer series of posts, but I kept waffling on it. I kept like spinning my wheels because I kept looking at it and thinking, no, this is, this is sprawling. This has a cast of characters. There's going to be way too much going on. And so I would retreat into world building and not write anything. And when I made that short story post, it was an idea I thought was, was good. I didn't necessarily have the, the concept in my head that it was going to be a whole darn novel at that point. But somebody said, you should write more at that point. And I thought, well, this would be a more approachable first thing to write. So I, I, I think that it's definitely something where you have to go into it with a realistic assessment of the fact that you're, you know, you're going to have deficiencies as a writer that you only correct through writing. And your, your first novel will not be as good as your second, your 10th novel will probably not be as good as your 11th. But I, I, lo I love your comment about how you went into it with the intent of learning, because I think that's, that's one of those things that we can always keep 
as writers and in the business world as entrepreneurs as well. If you if you go into something new with the intent of learning, then you always come out ahead. Like do the best you can do, learn everything you can learn and you know, let the results take care of themselves basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the way to avoid being being sad and stagnant is to sort of keep yourself mentally young and going after new experiences. Let's definitely keep ourselves from being sad and stagnant. I love that. Let's end on that. That's a really good line, Tony. <laughs> it's it's well, how I wake so up every morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shall not be sad. I shall not be stagnant. Off we go. Um, well, Tony, thank you so much for being on the show. It was absolutely wonderful talking to you as always. And um, for l listeners, you can go to the show notes and check out um, check out Tony's work. You can subscribe and follow him um, or become... I'm not sure what the phrasing is on that. You can become a Patreon community member to get advanced access to his current book, Peculiar Soul. And you can also order his previous books online uh, via Amazon, as well as the audiobook for Grand Design, where the pre-orders are now available on Audible. So Tony, thank you again. So wonderful talking to you. That was great.